Matthew 9, chapter 9, verses 18 through 34. While he was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. And Jesus rode and follow, rose and followed them with his disciples. And behold, a woman who had suffered from discharge of blood for twelve years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, for she said to herself, If I only touch his garment, I will be made well. Jesus turned and seeing her said, Take heart, daughter. Your faith has made you well, and instantly the woman was made well. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, he said, Go away, for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in, took her by the hand, and the girl arose. And the report of this went through all, the district, all that district. And as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he entered the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? They said, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened, and Jesus sternly warned them, See that no one knows about it. But they went away and spread his fame through all that district. As they were going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man, who was mute, was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke, And the crowds marveled, saying, Never was anything like this seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, He casts out demons by the prince of demons. I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and join me in Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9. You and I live in incredible days. If you look around us and consider time in which we live and the technology that's available and the comforts that are available for our lives. It's around you everywhere. Some of the big things that came to my mind as I thought about how incredible the days are that we live in this week are just a few things that I'll ask you to reflect on. People in our day live longer than they have lived in many, many, many generations. Think about our medical technologies and the fact that we can put someone's uh, body on bypass and work on their heart and then connect all of it back and them live. We can actually take someone and open up their brain and work on the human brain. It's amazing how much technology that we have. We can even pinpoint and diagnose certain cancers and diseases. If you go outside of the human body and think about our world and around us that uh, we can predict weather events, whether it be storms or tornadoes or hurricanes or, or even tsunamis. And in many instances, we can predict them in time to warn people to get out of harm's way. However, if you look around with all the technologies and technological advances in medicine and weather and in so many other areas, even with all the comforts of our day, we still face unexplained cancer. Diseases that happen to our lives and and our bodies are racked with them that we do not understand. Natural disasters that come and, and take lives and all kinds of various trials that we don't understand. We can't connect the suffering with the way that we're living. To be clear, we all know that some suffering is a direct result of our own sin. 
The alcoholic dies of liver cancer, we can explain that. The chain smoker gets lung cancer. We kind of know what is going on. If a drug addict crashes his car and is paralyzed, we draw that back to sin. If the sexually immoral contacts or contracts, excuse me, AIDS, we know what's going on. And we know that there are consequences of our own sin. But there are situations in our lives that you and I very well know and we can't explain them. When Violet Martin gets lung cancer, we don't know. When our good friend, we found out this week, Melissa Wilkes gets cancer in her mid-30s and the diagnosis and prognosis is not good, we can't explain that. When thousands are killed in a tsunami or Katrina in New Orleans, we can't explain why that happens. When Hannah Grace lives 21 minutes and God takes her life, we can't explain that. This is suffering we don't understand and this is what makes us long for desire, seek after, look for answers and solutions and some kind of hope and salvation from what we see in the world in which we live. Lord, is there any answer? Is there any hope? We come to the Word of God and we know that God has promised a salvation to come. And He promised it even in the midst of man's sin when He kicked Adam and Eve out of the garden. God promised, I will come and I will provide a way of restoration. And it will not only be a way for you to have forgiveness of the sin that causes you suffering. It will be an elimination of the suffering that just comes now because you live in a fallen world. And so there has been a longing for that. From Genesis 3, from the moment Adam and Eve walked out of the garden and one of their own sons killed the other, there has been a longing, God, will you not save? Will you not bring deliverance? Can we overcome the death that is the result of sin in our world? And God said, yes. I will send one. He will be a Messiah. He will be the anointed one of God. And He will bring deliverance. Matthew in this gospel has been introducing you and I to that one, the Messiah, the promised one, Jesus Christ, the son of Abraham, the son of David. He is the fulfillment of God's promise. And you and I have been looking over the last couple of weeks in chapters 8 and 9 of Matthew's gospel showing us Jesus' authority and the fact that he has the power over all of these things that are the suffering because of a fallen world in which we live. And Matthew is holding him up and saying, this is the one. Trust him. He is the one who has come. He is the one who has sent by God. And so Matthew's been showing us his ministry that he has power over disease. In this section, we've seen uh, a, a pattern. There were three miracles that showed Jesus' authority over disease and the faith of the leper and the soldier. He healed the leper who believed. He healed the soldier's servant and the soldier believed and God just Jesus just spoke a word and he was healed and then he shows us Jesus healing many there in Peter's home including Peter's mother-in-law and there were two conversations about the cost of following this Messiah that you must leave everything you must go from everything and release all of your life in order to follow him and we saw two would-be disciples there that it wasn't worth it for them 
They didn't or couldn't believe that he was worth leaving everything for. And then Matthew shows us three more miracles that show Jesus' authority again. First, over disaster. He calmed the storm at sea. He has the power over natural disaster. And then his power and authority over demons. He released two men from the power of demonic forces and his power over disease as Jesus speaks to the paralytic and says, Get up, my son. Take your bed and go home. And that's where we came to the heart of what Matthew is really showing us, isn't it? Jesus is not only showing us that he's powerful over disaster and demons and disease. Jesus is making a point in his very ministry. The king is here. And I am here not just to deal with the results of the fall but to deal with your sin and bring you into a kingdom. So he looks at the paralytic and says, Take heart, your sins are forgiven. And that's what we're longing for. He does all of the other to show us his power over disaster, over demons, over disease, to show us I am the one that was promised by God. I have hope for you. I have brought salvation to you. So that is the heart of the issue. He not only has power over disease and disaster and demons, he has power over our very damnation because of sin. And he takes that. He takes the wrath of God. We will see in just a few chapters. But he's getting our minds ready to see and trust him as the Messiah. So now we pick up after the paralytic three conversations about faith and discipleship. Matthew is instructed follow me and he leaves all and follows Jesus and then there are these two conversations that set up the miracles that we will see today one with the Pharisees who confront Jesus then John's disciples come in and ask about fasting of all things in the midst of the conversation about fasting in chapter 9 Jesus brings up this illustration of the bridegroom and the wedding that is going to take place. The bridegroom is here, and it's clearly Jesus, the one with all of this power and authority. And because He is here, there is a new kingdom that has been proclaimed, and He's inviting you to follow Him. The Messiah is here. He's doing something new. He's putting away sin. By His very presence, we see that sin can't be there. Death, even, we'll see today, can't. Linger there. And so, in the midst of the conversation about the new covenant, we pick up in verse 18 while he was saying these things, while Jesus was teaching about the new covenant, Jairus, a ruler in the synagogue, walks up in and interrupts the conversation, kneels down before Jesus, and says to him, My daughter has died. Mark's gospel tells us his daughter is 12 years old. Jesus doesn't say anything, does he? There's no conversation here. Look at verse 19. Jesus got up and followed him. It wasn't, hey, what do you want me to do? You don't have to ask what you want somebody to do when they kneel before Jesus and say, my daughter's dead. Come, lay your hand on her and she'll live. See the faith of this ruler there's no conversation he just gets up and he follows the 
then we have this, this interruption in verse 20. As they're walking to Jairus' house, a lady walks up behind Jesus, who's had this issue of blood. She sneaks up from behind, touches the fringe of his garment. Look at her faith there in verse 21. She said to herself, If I only touch his garment, I will be made well. I don't need to face him. I don't need him to say anything. If I could just get close enough to touch his clothes, I will be made well. Look at that faith and who Jesus is. Jesus knows the conversation that he has is given to us in both Luke and Mark. And he knows and he turns and he speaks with the woman for a moment in Matthew's gospel. Jesus just turns and says to her, Take heart, daughter. Your faith has made you well. And immediately she is healed. He gets to the ruler's house. When he comes up to the home, there's great commotion around the home. There's a funeral going on. And it's amazing to me what Jesus says in verse 24. There are flute players. There are crowds making commotion. The Mishnah, which would have been a, a Jewish document teaching us <coughs> excuse me, how we are to live in, the, in Jesus' day in first century Judaism, would say that if you are going to mourn correctly, you must, no matter how poor you are, you must hire at least two flute players, and you must hire at least one wailer, a mourner that would loudly wail at a funeral. And so this funeral is going on because there's a 12-year-old girl that has died. This man is not a poor man. He is a ruler in the synagogue. So could you you imagine how many flute players, how many mourners that he had brought in to help the family mourn in this situation. Jesus says there's a great commotion going on all around the house and he looks at them in this funeral and he says, get out of here. This is not a funeral. She's just asleep. Now what would you do if someone walked into a funeral that you were celebrating the life, mourning the loss of a loved one, especially a young girl like this? You were mourning. Her body is laying there dead. And someone walked in and said, she's just asleep. Go away. They laughed at him. You don't know what we know. Who are you? Jesus finally clears the house. I love verse 25. He goes and he grabs this little girl's hand. When he touches her hand, she gets up. Make no mistake, Jesus was not saying she's just sleeping. Jesus was saying, listen, when the king is here, death is not final. There's hope for us here, church. Not only is our Savior more powerful than disease, not only is our Savior more powerful than demons, or disaster. He is more powerful than the results of sin. He has power over death, and when he approaches death, death cannot stay. It must flee. Two things about this story. One of three miracle stories that I want us to see this morning, and in these three stories, there are actually five miracles. Two of them are here. I want you to see about this ruler and his daughter, and about this woman with the discharge of blood. Two things that I want you to note about them. First, I want you to note the despair that led to their faith. 
It's incredible that a religious leader, this is a ruler in the synagogue. We have already seen the Pharisees questioning Jesus. They have already started this antagonistic relationship with Jesus. How desperate does a father of the Pharisees, of the religious leaders, this man is from the synagogue, the enemies of Christ. How desperate does he have to be to come to Jesus and say, my daughter has died. Can you do something if you will just come touch her? If you will just come, you're the miracle worker. Can you come and touch my daughter? Can you imagine how desperate, Father, how desperate would you be with a 12-year-old child who has died? You're looking for any answer. How about this lady who's been bleeding in her life for as long as this little girl's been alive? 12 years, Matthew tells us. Luke tells us the little girl's 12. Matthew tells us this lady's been bleeding for 12 years. So as long as that little girl has even been alive, this lady's been bleeding. Luke also tells us she has spent every bit of money she had. She is now destitute and poor because every bit of money that she had, she paid to doctors that said, I can do something for you. I can heal you. I've got a new treatment. I can do what you need in your body. And the Bible tells us that it only got worse and worse and worse and worse. How desperate is she to come to the healer and say, I am unclean in my culture because I have this issue of blood. And the Old Testament would say, you're unclean. You can't be around people. You can't touch anyone. She doesn't want to touch Jesus because she would make him unclean, but she doesn't even want to come and confront him on the and face to face. She just says, if I could just touch his clothing, I will be made well. How desperate are you after spending your life's savings, everything you own, in order to be healed, and it just gets worse, worse and worse, and you just want to touch the clothing of a miracle worker. Desperation. Jesus, if you would just come near, I can live. Secondly, I want you to notice the death that was not the final condition. You see, this lady had been bleeding for as long as this little girl had been alive. Death was imminent for her. There, if it's getting worse and worse, she knows my death is imminent. She's tried everything. The condition has only gotten worse. With every drop of blood that left her body, her life was seeping away. She was experiencing a long, agonizing death. This little girl who is 12, we're not told about her cause of death, but clearly her life was taken from her early. She had just died, but the king is here. His kingdom brings an end to death. Isn't that what Matthew is showing us? He's showing us that we can have a taste of the kingdom when Jesus is here. That's what he was just telling to the Pharisees and John's disciples. The bridegroom is here, and when the bridegroom is here, there's celebration. Why? Because death cannot stay. Disaster cannot stay. Demons cannot stay. Nothing has power over God's creation when the bridegroom is here, not even death. There's not one of us in this room that has any hope, any belief that we will escape death in this world. The Bible says there's appointed unto man once to die. Every one of us will go that way. Death is a reality of this world, but when the king is here, there is no fear of death. There is no eternal death because the king has power over death. The question for us, I mentioned when we were in Genesis chapter 3, 
The question throughout all of time has been, is there a way for us to overcome the curse of sin, the results of sin, the wages of sin, which is death? And here's what Jesus is teaching, and Matthew is showing it to us so clearly. Our greatest problem, your greatest problem is not disaster. It is not disease. It's not cancer or a tumor. It's not demonic activity in the world. It is not... Any of that, as bad as cancer is, as bad as disease is, as bad as tornadoes and hurricanes are, our greatest problem is sin and its consequences, and that consequence is death, and that is not only physical death, the result of living in sin and living in the sinful world is not just physical death, it's spiritual, eternal death, and the King has come into our world and shown us I have power over death. In a few chapters, Jesus will go to a cross and lay his life down to pay for the eternal death that is yours and mine. But he will not stay in that tomb. You can go to the tomb of many religious leaders. You can go to the tomb of Confucius. It's occupied. You can go to the tomb of a Buddha. It's occupied. You can go to any tomb of any religious leader in any place in the world, save Jesus' tomb, it is empty. Because Jesus has power over death, the result of sin. And so He did not stay in that grave. He paid the price for you. He had power over sin, over death. And so He rose from the dead. And rising from the dead, He shows you, I have power over death, I have power over life. I have come to be your King. And we see it here in Matthew's Gospel. Notice the compassion Jesus gives us here. He touches the woman. Or touches the little girl she raises. He has compassion on the woman. He looks at her and says, Take heart. He will touch Listen, friend, our God has overcome death for you and for me. And His invitation has been the invitation through all of Matthew's gospel. Follow me. Come to me in faith. Trust me. Believe in me. And the King was here. Listen, if you say, well, the king's not here, that's because, John 14, he has gone to prepare a place. He rose from the dead and he ascended into heaven and he said, I am coming again. So we are in that time that he was just talking about of mourning, of of fasting because we long for the consummation. When Jesus was here, he didn't heal every disease in the whole world. He didn't wipe out disease. He didn't wipe out disaster. He didn't wipe out demonic activity. He didn't end physical death. But when he touched it. He showed us His power over it because He is coming again. And my friend, when He comes again, He will come to do away with all of those. They will be no more in His kingdom. And so we fast and trust and live and believe and hope because our greatest problem is that death and He has come to show us His power over it. And He says to you now, follow me. Trust me. 
two more stories in this text I want to bring your attention to. Because these two stories illustrate how we can respond to Jesus' authority, and I don't want you to miss them. We've noticed the words following Jesus and followed Him have been key in Matthew's gospel. These nine chapters, again, here in this next story, they are key for us. Because Jesus left there in verse 27, and He passed on from there and left that conversation. And as He was going, there were two blind men that came up to Him, and they were saying this, note it in verse 27, Have mercy on us, Son of David. Two things about that statement. First, it's the clearest statement of Jesus' identity that we have seen so far in Matthew by someone in Matthew's gospel. It's the first time that anyone recognizes Jesus is the Messiah. That's what Son of David means because this is the promise to David. You will have one that will sit on the throne of David forever. And so for these two blind men to say to Jesus, to recognize who He is, then what we have is these that have made this great statement of faith. Jesus, we know who you are. You are the Messiah. Not only did they recognize him, though, they also recognized their need for him. Have mercy on us, Messiah, son of David. Oh, my friend, this is what it takes to follow him. They followed him in verse 27. They recognized who he was, and they recognized their need for him. The prophet Isaiah said, when the Messiah comes, the eyes of the blind will be open. Can you imagine these two guys? Jesus has cast out demons. He has healed every affliction of those that have come before him, every one that has been brought to him, including a paralytic. He's healed them. Can you imagine the conversation with these two blind guys? Isaiah over in chapter 35 says that when the Messiah comes, he's going to He's going to open blind eyes. Let's go see if we can find him. And they come to him. And they say, we're blind. We need you. You're the Messiah. And Jesus, <laughs> unbelievably, verse 28, lets them follow him. And they follow him into the house. And he looks and he says, do you believe I'm able to do this? The question of faith, do you believe? Yes, Lord. And so he touched their eyes and says, according to your faith, be it done for you. Wow. Look at the irony of Matthew's statement here as we think about how you and I respond to Jesus. Two blind men recognize who Jesus is while the religious people of the day are blind to who he is. This is the irony. Blind men see better here than ones who can see. And so Jesus touches them and they're healed. Don't miss the irony that we can respond as these blind men with faith and trust in Jesus for the hope and the salvation and the healing that we need or we can continue to see and yet be blind and continue on our own way. I told you last week the question is, will you follow or continue living the way you're living? Where are we? Where are we today? Incredible irony here in this text. Notice too, Jesus warns them not to tell anyone. There's more irony in this little story. In, in verse 30, he says, uh, see that no one knows about it. In verse 31, can you imagine two men that have been blind that go out and now they've got to tell everybody? Look at the irony, verse 31. But they went away and spread his fame throughout all the district. They didn't just go home and tell it. They went everywhere and told it. Notice the irony in just a few chapters. Listen, 
In just a few chapters, Jesus is going to say to you and I, those who are His disciples or call ourselves His disciples, go and make disciples of all nations. And yet we fail at making disciples over and over and over. See the irony? Jesus says, don't tell anybody. They tell everybody. Jesus tells the church today, tell everybody. We don't tell anybody. We just want to live our lives. Last story, verse 32, as they were going away. So these men are leaving Jesus. As they're going away, look, at that moment, a demon-oppressed man who is mute was brought to him. Matthew has already told us over and over these miracle stories. And so verse 33, he just says, and once the demon was cast out, this man was mute because he was possessed by a demon. Now, make this clear. The Bible never teaches us that those who are mute or, or, or deaf are not, it's not always the cause of a demon. This one was. He was oppressed by a demon, and so he could not speak because of this oppression. And and Matthew just kind of glosses over it like, you and I have seen such authority and such power over demons and disease and disaster that we wouldn't be surprised about this. And so he says, and when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke, and the crowds, note this verse 33, the crowds marvel. Never was anything like this seen in Israel. Never have we seen the power of Christ that we've seen in these two chapters. We have not seen this kind of power anywhere in all of history. This man has incredible authority. Not so with the Pharisees. Jesus cast out a demon and they said, Well, he made that man healed well because of the demons. Note the foolishness that you and I come to very often. Jesus is casting out a demon and they say it's by demon power. Why in the world would you ever come to that conclusion? Because you cannot face the fact that he is the king and surrender to his authority. So, I want you to look at the responses in these last two stories and we close. How will you and I respond to the Savior? First, the crowds marveled. They looked at Jesus and they marveled at him. Never have we seen anything like this. As a matter of fact, we've seen them marvel over and over. Let me, let me say something to you. This marveling by the crowd is really a following from a distance. When Jesus goes to the cross, where are the crowds? When he stands before the people and Pilate holds him up, where are the crowds? Listen to me, church. Don't miss the crowds in Matthew. Crowds are fickle. They can be easily swayed and they will be in this gospel. If today you are just following a crowd and your faith is not in Jesus, you're just here because there was somebody else here. You're just listening to Jesus. You just think, oh, he's a great guy. He's a great teacher. That's great. The crowds were there and they are getting ready to turn on Jesus. When Jesus invites you to follow him, my friend, he is not inviting you to be a part of a crowd that's amazed at his power. He's inviting you to die to yourself and follow after him with all that you are. I'm afraid that in our churches across this country and across this world, we've got a lot of crowd followers. The crowds will change. And if you're just following a crowd today, when following Jesus gets tough, you're not going to hang in there. I've seen it. You've seen it through all of my ministry. There are those that say, I'm going to follow Jesus. And they're about all that we're doing. They're about programs. They're about fellowship. They're about... But when difficulties come, where are they then? 
When life gets tough and you have to stand up for your faith, where is your faith? Crowd following from a distance is not following Christ. It's not surrendering all. Are you just a part of the crowd today? Secondly, I want you to see at the end of this passage in verse 34, the religious leaders, they just criticize. They attribute as casting out demons to demonic power. They have foolish blindness that leads them to unbelief because they cannot accept that their own good works will not get them to heaven. And if you're here today and you really think, I am better than so-and-so, I know what he did, I know what she did, I know how they live, I know how this person acts, and I'm better than that. Surely God is going to look at my life and think I'm okay. Then you will end up like the Pharisees and you will criticize Jesus. And so here's the question for you. Do you really have a reason in your life functionally that you believe Jesus had to die for you? Or are you just a little messed up and you need to do some better things so that he will accept you listen here's what the bible teaches jesus died or you go to hell one had to shed his blood or you are eternally punished believe him the king is here and he died and showed his power so thirdly the blind men they follow him they recognize who jesus is Listen to Isaiah chapter 35, and I close. This is Isaiah prophesying the coming Messiah. Strengthen weak hands and make firm, feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong and do not fear. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save. Then, The eyes of the blind will be opened. The ears of the deaf will be unstopped. Then the lame will leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute will sing like joy for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. That's what Matthew is saying to us right here. The mute is able to speak. Why? The King, the Messiah is here Today, church, you and I have been called to follow after our Messiah. My invitation to you is come to the one who has power over death. Renew your faith in him, or if you have never placed faith in him, would you come to him today?